Municipal Mania. Mania, 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 mania. That's right. Heard every Wednesday right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. That would be at 11 a.m. You can tune in via the radio or WRIR.org. Many ways that you can listen to this show, including our podcast. So there's no excuse. <laughs> Hi, Fran. Hey. Hey. We we are um, we have one more uh, episode to record to round out a week of like recording five <laughs> episodes of this show to get to get ahead of the game. So um, we took a hiatus and we came back and we were like, "Hey, we're just gonna pack them all in." And it's Women's History Month, so we've been trying to talk to as many awesome ladies as we possibly can uh, because Richmond's full of folks uh of the femme persuasion doing the work so yeah well let's see who we have with us today well should i introduce myself or y'all want to no you do right so i'm great so i'm julie tim i'm the ceo for grtc uh y'all had me on when i first got here just over a year ago and it felt feels almost like a lifetime ago 2020 was brutal um so i'm really i'm really excited to be back and talking with y'all again and uh, uh but yeah women's history month there are so many great women leaders here in the rva region doing transportation work um not just outside of grtc because there's some great ones there but also inside grtc and and carrie is one of those and she's with me so i'm gonna let Carrie jump in real quick. Thanks, Julie. I'm Carrie Rose Pace, the Director of Communications for GRTC. I help with customer service and communications with media and also internally with our staff, which has been really important during the ongoing pandemic. Awesome, ladies. Thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate your presence and we thank you for joining us again. Yes. Yeah. We, uh, yeah. Had a blast yes. last time, you know. Yes, it was. We did. We had uh, Adam and Wyatt were with us last time, and they are just hysterical. Yeah. Well, I'll bring the humor with my cat this time. Yay! Oh, yay! <laughs> <laughs> she, she wants to be a part of this, and, and she's a lady, so she can be. She can be. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> we like it. Well, y'all have, uh, speaking of ladies, though, um, don't. Y'all have quite a few ladies in your leadership roles in GRTC. We do, we do. I am, uh, you know, I always talk about me first. Sorry about that, but uh, I'm the, the the sixth CEO of GRTC, but the first first woman here uh, to be CEO in this role formally. But informally, Cheryl Adams actually filled this role as an interim before me. So they they gave me the title of being the first one, but truly I was the second because Cheryl did it before. For me, she was the uh, chief operating officer. When I got here, I kind of elevated her role to be my chief of staff. She's my right hand, and she's also acting COO. We just hired, um, I shouldn't say hired, promoted Adrian Torres to be our chief development officer. So uh, a new chief officer, she is leading the innovation and the expansion and the strategy for infrastructure and technology and growth and communications for the entire agency as we move forward. Um, she was our uh, planning director and uh, director of planning and scheduling. When she moved up, her planning manager also kind of moved up with her. And is now we have Emily Del Ross, who is the um, director of planning and scheduling. We have Carrie, who's the director of, of marketing and communication. We have Tanya, who's the director of procurement. We have, hold on. I, I'm not done. I mean, there's so much more. We have Mia, who is, uh, she's now the acting general manager, manager for First Transit, our, our care service. Uh, we have, who am I missing, Carrie? We, there's so many women. Did who you are do Angie with HR already? I didn't. Angie with HR. She's a, She leads our HR, our entire HR department's almost all women. Um, half of our 
procurement is women. Almost all of our finance departments, women with the people that do our budgeting, our, um, our, most of our schedulers are women, most of our planners are women. Uh, we just have some amazing women leadership. We have a lot of women who are drivers. The one thing I would say that we don't have a lot of are women mechanics, and that's something we're going to work on. Um, I think there needs to be some more emphasis about uh, about having that opportunity available to women as well. We had one for a while, um, but I think that she's no longer with us. So we just need to open up those avenues for women to excel. Awesome point. Yes, equity mm-hmm. all the way across the board because there are definitely mm-hmm. um, some awesome female mechanics. I just, um, I've been working in the um, towing business for the last couple of years and some of the best tow truck drivers that I've come across, women are, we are detail oriented and we always follow rules when it comes to towing. They're some of the best tow truck drivers that I've run across for women. Hey, we'll send them our way. We are hiring. Um, if they're if they're out there and you know them, we are definitely hiring here. Women and men. So we, we welcome the men too. Uh, but you know, the focus right now being Women's History Month. That's why we're talking about women. But really, equal opportunity. Um, we have a lot of openings as we're looking to expand service across the region. We do have a driver shortage, and we do have openings for mechanics, and we have openings in other areas of the uh, the agency as well. And we have great benefits. This is truly a, a family here where um, starting pay is for almost every position to fix an hour, and you quickly go through steps to reach a much higher. We have operators. Who, the ones that choose to work uh, extra time and put in overtime can make six figures here. We have excellent health. We have an excellent pension and retirement. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we love our folks here. That's wonderful That's that you're hiring for so many positions, uh, you know, especially, well, right now when it's really needed most. So get you some jobs. Yeah, we, um, it was important. And that was, I think one of the even though we're hiring now, it's not because we, we lost staff during COVID or because we laid anyone off. That was one, when COVID hit, one of our, our first priorities was to make sure our staff safe and healthy, that we have not laid off anybody who, <laughs> I, I see this, sorry, my, my, my screen kind of, I can't see you now because there we go. Okay. <laughs> my screen did a funny thing. Uh, we didn't lay anyone off. We were really we really wanted to make sure that we protected the jobs of people who worked here. Even though we, when we went zero fare, there's some of our staff who worked in the fare collection. We found other jobs for them. We found other ways to keep them protected and keep their, their, uh, their jobs safe and secure so that they wouldn't have to worry about the economic impacts. Because whenever a lot of other companies were laying off through COVID, we wanted them to have the security of their jobs here and the security of their health here, uh, the health care that they have. Um, and so that, that stayed the whole way through. But, um, we now have this regional money we're looking to expand. So not only do we need to, to you know, keep protecting the jobs that we have now, but get more operators in so that we can have more of that service. And so anyone who's looking for a really good job in a really good company, you know, give us a call. So I, um, I actually will. Um, I'd like to talk to you at length about that um, when we um, get off of the chat about um, sure. so some of your hiring requirements and what you're looking at, because I know there are several um, programs in Richmond that are looking to kind of um, help place um, individuals for jobs right now. So that would be amazing. So I'll, I'll definitely touch base with you um, on that. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, there's the, um, we're trying to make sure that we've reduced barriers to, to, to jobs and to make sure that people have an opportunity to have a job that maybe they, um, they had a rough start when they were in high school or, or when they got out of high school or maybe they didn't even finish high school, but, um, if they if they got a, a good passion and they want to to be of service to the community and they want to be part of that family and and there are certain minimum skills they have to be able to pass you have to be able to drive if you're going to be an operator be able to read to do the CDL you don't have to know you know hardcore genetics to be an operator though there's certain things that just aren't a requirement awesome awesome great I that's what we love to hear so. That's great. And that's great information to share. So we will definitely, um, I'll definitely get with you and get some information on that. Um, Thank you. As we talk about that, this has been a, and we kind of touched on that before, 2020 has been uh, quite the long (laughs) process. 
of of <laughs> I feel like what are we <laughs> the, the year of a thousand sighs. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. Like 40th month um repeat of, of, of Seriously. at this point. But you know, we also have had some, you know, even through that process, you know, transportation um, and public transportation has still and has had to maintain being a necessity uh, to uh, our constituents in the city throughout that time. Um, what has been going on with our public transportation um, in Richmond and how have you guys, uh, you know, used this process to really meet the challenges uh, through that struggle? Um, what does that look like for you guys for the last year? Oh, yeah, and, and it's been a, it certainly has been a painful, painful year. So when COVID hit March almost exactly a year ago uh, is when it, it really started to hit home here in RVA. Um, the first thing we did is, you know, we did look, I have to be honest, we, we did look at, are we going to have to shut down service? Are we going to have to lay people off? How are we going to get through this? When everyone's going home, um, when, you know, if we don't have the money to pay people, how are we going to support? We were so, so lucky that uh, Department of Rail and Public Transportation very quickly put out relief funds. And we were able to use that money to protect people's jobs, zero fare, and to keep service levels high so that people who needed to use the service to get to work could. Um, going zero fare was really critical for us early on. Uh, basically, what zero fares means is that when, you, when you're in a normal fare service, when you get on the bus, you get on the front door, you stand there, you put your coins in or your pass, or you have to, if your pass jams, put it in again, or you have to ask directions. And all the while, if you're sick, you're coughing on my operator. <laughs> you know. So the, the first thing is, is if we're going to keep service going, the operators have to stay healthy. So going zero fare allowed us to get people on through the back door. They didn't have to pay fares. They can get on and off. They can kind of go through the bus. And we can put up a, a, a little bit of a barrier to keep people away from the operators so the operators could stay healthy and thrive while still providing that service to the community. So that was something that we did. We also started getting some partnerships because there were no masks. If you remember a year ago, um, there were no masks available. It didn't matter what you did. You couldn't get a mask. We've had some some local uh, children and uh, households start handcrafting masks for us right away. And as soon as we got those in, some of them we actually started paying. Some of the the households said, "We understand you're not working. We we got that started to come in from the CARES Act. We said we have some money. We can pay you for these for your supplies and your time. We got those in. We started getting masks to our operators. You couldn't find hand sanitizer anywhere." There's no sanitizer. No, I mean, there's no toilet paper either. That didn't impact us quite as much. Luckily, we had some stores of that, but no hand sanitizer. Uh, we had a local distillery. I saw on the paper that they were they were had converted over from making bourbon to making hand sanitizer, and we got two huge drums of it. Uh, and we're still working through some of that. I think we bought some more midway through, but that got us the hand sanitizers. And we just started doing everything we could. We were we looked at our buses and our buses before. We only clean them like once every four or five days is our standard detail. We immediately started doing everything we can to get more. We hired a, a, another firm to come in to have extra staffing to get those buses cleaned every single night and sanitized every single night because our operators had to stay healthy. We sent everyone to work from home who didn't have to be frontline. So all of our, our folks went home and all of our meetings were canceled and our building was shut down. So that's where we started. And we haven't slowed down since. The partnerships we've gotten, the federal funding has allowed us to stay zero fare. What we found is that our ridership on our express route bottomed out. Our ridership on BRT on the Pulse, that's about half, but our ridership on our local route barely dropped. It dropped maybe 20% and bounced right back because those riders on our local buses who have household incomes below 50,000 a year, below 25,000 a year, some of them, about 25% of them, have household incomes below $10,000 a year. These are people who are on the bus because they have to get to work in essential jobs that did not close down during COVID. And they, they, they couldn't afford to keep paying the fare and get to work and pay for food and pay for the high rising cost of toilet paper and hand sanitizer. So, you know, keeping that zero fares in place became a secondary priority for us. Operators and staff healthy first the healthiness of our, our riders came second 
And the third priority we put in place was that as we look through this, how do we not only keep people physically healthy from COVID, the disease, but how do we keep people financially healthy as the economy has turned down to make sure they don't lose their homes, they don't lose their access to jobs throughout this pandemic? And how do we keep them financially healthy throughout this and ongoing after it? And those have been our priorities. I know I'm all kind of going on here, but I'm really passionate about this. It's transformed the way I think about how we serve our and who we're serving in our community. Yeah, absolutely. And this zero fare approach has been phenomenal. Uh, do you think you can keep that up past the pandemic? Like, yeah. what would it take to keep that going? Yeah, it's it's a challenging question, and I think I, I think I have an answer for it. But it, it, it's a little controversial, too, because you start talking about zero fare and people say, well, everyone needs to pay their fair share and we're paying for empty buses. And, um, you know, the express riders, they should be paying their fair share. You know, how do you how do you make sure it's equitable? Uh, so we had to dig into the data to see is it is it reasonable? How long should we stay zero fare once the pandemic ends? Once everyone has vaccines, how long do we stay for the economic recovery? And then do we stay that way forever or do fares come back? So we have enough money through the Federal um, Relief Act, the first, second, and third one, to be able to stay zero fares throughout the, the pandemic. And still vac- until vaccines are out there, we can stay zero fare. We, we know that now. The next question is, is, can we stay zero fares during the economic recovery? I think that my board will, with the money we just got from the third relief, I believe that my board will enact zero fares for the next fiscal year. So that will get us into the economic recovery. Then the question is, is do we stay that way permanently? By that point, we'll have been zero fare for almost two years. The data that we have showing that most of the fares were collected by our local bus riders, you know, and our local bus riders predominantly being people of color and low income in disadvantaged, underinvested communities. When we put fares back, are we putting it back on the backs of our most disenfranchised communities? And the question is, yeah, we do. So, but shouldn't we still make the people who can afford to pay, pay? And how do we balance both? And the answer is that it takes a one and a half million dollars for us to collect fares. Um, those uh, more economically advantaged riders who are doing express who got to stay home, most of them, not all of them, most of them weren't paying fares anyway. They were getting it for their businesses. So, and it was about half a million dollars. So we should spend a million and a half to collect half a million from businesses, why can't we just go straight to businesses and ask them to support? Why can't we look at a pilot to see how can we make service agreements like VCU, who's been a champion for their students to have a service agreement and look for partnerships with other businesses to come in and support the economic investment in our riders? Because when you invest in our riders, when you invest in people who have very low income, the money that they're not putting into the fare box they're putting back immediately into the economy and into the community through their food or their medicine or their jobs or their children. Um, it comes immediately back. So you have this growth. You also have a growth where you're signaling to our, our children and our youth that this is a place to stay, that we're investing in them. And you signal to businesses outside that we're investing in our workforce. We're investing in our community. And this is a good place to come and, and put your business because there's workers here. And so you create this investment cycle where by investing in your people, you invest in the community, you invest in the region, and we all rise together. And then the taxes that come back out of that growth go back to support and maintain zero fares. So it's a growth cycle. Uh, I have a bunch of numbers that show that we can get there. We have federal dollars, and I believe we'll have state dollars to pilot it for several years. And if we get to the end of the, the several years and the rest of the investment from the community hasn't come back to support it. The businesses, the localities still haven't kind of gotten to that extra $5 million that we need every year. Then fares will come back, but we'll have several years to try it out. Lots of words there, but um, no one has promised we're going zero fare yet, but we are making very strong strides to pilot that for more than just a couple of years. So now that we know, you know, we've got a pilot, um, kind of working in place to... Uh, we hope, we hope. Yes, we hope working in, in place so that we can um, try to keep, and I think that was one of the questions that, you know, went across Twitter a lot. You know, why can't, you know, writers that can't afford to pay, you know, don't pay and then, 
people that can't afford to pay just pay and that just makes sense. And um, I think that was one of the questions that, that helped answer that for folks. Um, you know, it costs money to collect money. Um, it does. And, and if and, you're paying more to collect it from a few and you're not collecting that much from them, what that means is that someone has to pay it. And that's a, honestly, it's kind of like the dirty little secret of transit is that a lot of transit is paid for by our lowest income. And if we put in some of the, like these fare capping, it's called, um, so you put in the, the stored value card that you tap on. And then once you hit a certain value, you don't have to pay anymore for the month. And you, you do that for your low income riders. It takes a lot of uh, money to put that in place. The dirty secret is, is that when you do that, so actually get less money and support your low income riders, the transit agency suffers because no one's filling in that gap. We're funded mostly when you look at Fairbox, most of our Fairbox funding comes from low income riders yeah. and the rest of it doesn't support the cost of collecting. And besides the fact, um, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to, because you know, why not? Uh, if we get rid of fares, there's no more fair enforcement. There you go. Fair enforcement. I have to admit was a nightmare. It was a nightmare for, nightmare for everyone. I, I would love to not have to, to put that burden on our riders and our operators again yeah because that that definitely uh disproportionately affects one type or one group of, of rider over another and so uh, when we can um eliminate that that's always helpful especially in this time yeah yeah so with that being um with that being said and that was one of the major questions right um during COVID when we were discussing, you know, how funding was going to work. And now that we've got a pilot, hopefully, fingers crossed, yeah. um, that could potentially work, fingers crossed. What, yeah. you know, we had a plan, you know, before COVID, you know, tore things mm-hmm. up um, to kind of expand transit um, and make uh, transit work better for our city. How has that plan maybe shifted or changed or metamorphosized a bit um, yeah. bit the challenges that we now have, you know, right before uh, COVID, we were booming with um, ridership with the uh, pulse. And, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of us were hoping that we were going to get um, the cross-section T to pulse. Yeah. You know, connect that that other section of our city to make that work you know how what other pieces have we seen or should we expect to see an improvements for transit um or is that something that we should just kind of hold our horses here for a minute and let's see if we can we can recover right what does that look like for our future yeah, a little yeah a little of both honestly um so uh, and like I said, COVID and, and 2020, because not just COVID, also the BLM protests, they really changed my perspective on what our priorities should be for transit, who we're serving. Um, Pre-COVID, pre-me being GRTC, when you talk to a lot of folks in the transit industry, and I think you would you probably have found the same here before I got here. I certainly felt this way when I was in Nashville. I certainly felt this way in Hampton Roads, that when you look at things like BRT and light rail and some of the high capacity premium transit, you kind of feel like that's a, that's the way to kind of entice your middle class and your upper class kind of people into paying for transit. And that if you can get them on board with that, then you, it kind of flows over and then you can support the rest of transit through that. And it's a way to kind of get everyone on the same page and you get them investing and get more money. And it's a way to get there. And I, have to say i bought into that hook line and sinker it's it's playing the politics to get the money for the the good policy 2020 has turned that upside down for me and i really don't know that i agree with that anymore and i've had people say well let's get that north south brt because if we get the north south brt then we'll have the money for the sidewalks then we'll have the money for the accessibility then we'll be able to put this other stuff out i'm like why i'm sorry why do we have to have brt to keep people from staying in ditches now. Why do we have to do that? Why can't we go ahead and get people out of ditches now while we're working towards BRT as well? So we can do both, but why do we have to have BRT to get, one of my favorite pictures I put on Twitter recently is Walter. 
Walter, I got to meet him for like 15 minutes on a 45-degree uh, day uh, just a few weeks ago, right after the snowstorms. And he was on the 1C in front of the mobile home uh, park out uh, in South Richmond. And he was leaning against the stop, the bus stop. And if you go onto my seat, my Twitter page, you'll see the picture. Um, and he's leaning against the bus stop, surrounded by mud, next to a drainage ditch, filled with trash, just a few feet away from cars that are speeding by on this this very cloudy, cold day. And he's all wrapped up. He's got his crutches and his one leg. And he's an older gentleman. And so I passed. I'm like, I can't, I can't just pass. Turned back around, came back. And I said, sir, I said, you don't know me. I'm like, this is so iconic to me of what I think we need to be focused on for Richmond for transit. We need to fix this. You symbolized to me what I can fight. Can I take your picture and share this to show people what our riders and what our transit riders are facing? He says, absolutely, please. Um, he says, I'm, I'm Walter Watson. He says, you're going you're gonna to forget my name. I'm like, I am not going to forget your name, sir. He says, I'm a vet. I said, thank you for your service. He said, I'm on my way to the VA. Um, and uh, so I'm just waiting for the bus. I said, sir, can I give you a ride there? Um, it'd be my honor. He says, no, no, I'm, I'm enjoying the fresh air. And I, I, I took his picture, I put it on Twitter, and I, and I drove away. And I still to this day regret not insisting giving him a ride. I, once I got the office, I immediately pulled up the map to see whether or not his bus would actually arrive. Because through COVID, when we have absenteeism issues because our drivers are in quarantine, or they're, they're out sick because we, we want to make sure that they don't come in sick, whether they have COVID or not. There's a lot of buses that just don't go out. And, and, I, and there was a part of me, being, he's standing there and he's, his, his bus isn't scheduled for their 15 minutes. Is that one of the ones that's going to show up today or not? That to me is what we have to fix. That is what we have to be able to focus on, not BRT. We have to make sure that when Walter, our one-legged vets going to the VA, are standing there in ditches, they have a bench, they have a shelter, and they know their bus is coming. And if for some reason it's not, we have a backup plan to serve them. That's what we need to be focusing on. And we can't get to that until we have our South BRT. So, yeah, we're going to start doing studies for the South BRT so that when we're ready to construct it, we have the plans in place. But I'm going to be fighting for money and frequency for Walter. And That's the good news story. is we, we have actually started what Julie is talking about, this phase one of our, we now have new funding, as Julie mentioned, from the Central Virginia Transportation Authority, CVTA. And that's the first time we've had a dedicated funding source. And we really do owe a lot of that momentum to, to Julie coming in when she did. And it was like lightning struck and all the stars aligned to make this happen, this, this thing that was a, a dream for so long. And, and that's going to translate into service improvements far sooner than any of us ever hoped for. Uh, we just completed the first round of public engagement uh, during the pandemic, and we still got really great information illuminating insight from our riders, from residents who don't have any service today throughout Chesterfield and Rico. And then of course, we also got responses from the city of Richmond. But the information that we gathered from that and, and what we've learned during the pandemic is that we are going to be able to better meet the needs today and, and in the near future. Uh, we're about to go into the next phase of public engagement this spring. So stay tuned for more specifics on which routes we'll see improvements within the next year or two. Uh, but but we are on the way and we started installing new shelters. <laughs> Yay. Yay. And that's been another long project. And, and we heard, and this was, I would say, personally, my biggest takeaway from going through the Pulse project years ago was that as beautiful as the Pulse stations are, our local bus stops are pretty terrible in many places and they need just basic amenities, benches, trash cans, lighting. So all of our new shelters that we're installing that do have seating, they also have uh, solar powered lights. 
that will illuminate the the footshed of the station of the shelter area and and it, it's these these very basic amenities that make all the difference in the experience as a rider when you're waiting at the bus stop, especially in the dark, uh, and, and when you get off the bus stop after your trip is over. So we are making progress. And I do think that the Pulse, of course, was great for the community as a whole and for redevelopment and for VCU for being such a tremendous partner and, and opening up more mobility beyond the Pulse onto every bus route that we operate. I think that we get it, that we see that it it is about making sure that the every single day uses are are humane, are dignified, and are are usable. Yeah. Thank you, Carrie, because that there are a lot of people to thank for that CVTA money coming out. And because the CVTA money is going to be there, we're able to put out that um, that service, the one C if that moves forward next year, which the CVTA money will allow, will be 30 minute frequency. So uh, we will be looking at putting the shelters around. We will be looking at those. Um, but yeah, I get a little triggered when, when people say, well, let's put more BRT on. I'm like, I do, I want BRT. I, I love it. I think BRT is awesome. Uh, let's do that second. <laughs> yeah, because we have so many issues to tackle otherwise, like it's coming, we'll get there. Like keep your pants on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm hoping, honestly, I'm hoping that through the studies that uh, what DRPT did and the plan RVA and what my folks and and the the region are doing now with some of this, the the proposed extensions that will come to South Richmond and the higher frequency to South Richmond, that once we get that, it'll be baby steps, I believe, towards a BRT connection to South Richmond. And that will be, I think, a major transformation and a major benefit to communities here. So I, I am looking forward to that. This is for Carrie, but playing off a little bit of what uh, Julie was saying earlier, talking yeah. about Walter. What are y'all doing um, to utilize social media to reach out to the community and get feedback? And also, you know, I, we retweet all the time your alerts. Uh, so, you know. And thank you. Shout those <laughs> out, too. Yes, thank you. Uh, our social media alerts have been a labor of love for me uh, ever since I came to GRTC in 2015, uh, trying to, first of all, create a GRTC social media presence and then staff it. And it's the staffing it part that has been a challenge over time. We've And we've been taking it, we talked about baby steps. That's been a baby step process too. We have an almost entirely part-time customer service representative team. Many of them are retired and this is just a part-time gig that they do to make a little bit of extra money and you know stay active and engaged. And they are so good and we are extremely lucky to have them on the team. And some of them have been really eager to learn new technologies and new ways of communicating. So we've been able to take advantage of that enthusiasm and we place what we call the radio room CSR. CSR is short for customer service representative. And our radio room is the brain of the operations at GRTC. It's sort of like air traffic control, but for buses. That's where all of our supervisors are in the radio room. They can see in real time where every single bus is all the time. They have radio communications with every single bus and supervisor in service. And the radio room CSR can be there hearing all of it and seeing all of it. So if there is, as Julie was explaining, uh, a, a bus that doesn't have an operator quite yet and it's going to be delayed, then that radio room CSR can put out an alert. And we do that across platforms because not everyone is on Twitter, but Twitter is what we wanted to focus on for real time, real quick alerts. They can also put the same information in the mobile app. So if you have the GRTC Transit on the Go app, it's good for Android, which most of our users have, and then iPhone as well. It will post a little alert in that stop notification or for that route so that if a person is using the app, then they'll see the alert. And if you track by text, maybe you're like me and reluctant to drain your battery and you just want to send a text message based on your bus stop number, then that's another place that the alerts can be posted. So our technology has been getting better, but it is going to get much better this year. We have some new tools that are going to be going live probably this summer, but but stay tuned. And it will actually show you finally on your maps 
where the bus is detouring to. And that, because right now when you're in the app, mm-hmm. you'll be tracking your little bus and you're watching it and you're feeling good about that bus coming to your bus stop. And then it's like magic, it disappeared. And then it tells you next bus not due for, you know, 15 minutes, minutes <laughs> or whatever it is. It's so annoying. Um, but it happens all the time. And Julie and I actually, and, you know, I hate that I'm mean, sure the story all the time. I really do hate no. that I share it. <laughs> But Julie and I have the exact same story at the exact same bus stop downtown in front of City Hall, where there was construction happening on 10th Street. And our operators were, as they were leaving the 9th Street, the temporary transfer plaza, they were turning left on Lee Street to go down to 8th and beyond. But we didn't know that. It looked like the bus was going to come right by us. And so on separate nights, this was not the same instance, but on separate nights, Julie and I had the same experience where we, you know, we trusted the app. Okay, I see the bus, it says it's coming and it would disappear and then it would pop up down the street, not by me. Uh, so that will hopefully prevent this new technology, prevent that from happening for users who have the app. They'll actually be able to see the bus going on detour and that their stop is not going to be served. Because if it happened to Julie, the CEO, and me, the director of communications, then it's got to be happening to our customers all over the network. And it, it's extremely frustrating. And our call center isn't always open to take a phone call. So the technology has to be operating even when the human isn't there to speak with you and help you. So we are getting better. We are extending our staffing in the radio room with our CSR so that they can provide more all day service alerts on Twitter. Right now we're focused on the morning and the afternoon during the busiest time of day when most of our trips are are being impacted by manpower issues. And we are going to be getting better with that. Uh, Next month, actually, we will be extending some of our call center hours on the weekends to help with uh, people who are waiting for a bus that may be impacted. Julie talked about ensuring that we aren't leaving anybody behind. And what that means is if there's not another bus coming within an hour, then we need to have a backup plan. And the backup plan is through one of our on-demand partners, Userve, they're a local company They first partnered with GRTC to develop a CARE, a paratransit on-demand solution. One of the challenges that we found with CARE was that you had to schedule your your van ride a day in advance. And if you didn't and your plans changed, then you'd have to be placed on the will call list. And the will call list was just subject to how busy is that day and how quickly can you be worked in to the schedule. And that just makes it really hard to do normal life stuff. If a friend calls you up and says, hey, let's have lunch. If you're a care customer, it's really hard to do that the traditional way through the van program. But on demand, you could call and be picked up within 45 minutes and be with your friend for lunch easy. And so it's been a great partnership for our paratransit customers, but it's also been really critical during the service disruptions that we've experienced, whether because of, of pedestrians that were protesting in the street and we had to detour and make space for them to do so safely. Um, user was able to pick up, I think it was nine passengers during one of our protest evenings so that they could get home safely and we weren't trying to uh, go through pedestrian areas. It just, it made space for everyone to use the public space safely and ensure that our passengers got home when they needed to get home. It is truly an exciting time. I mean, I the, some of the things that we have, Carrie is uh, spot on that the, the technology improvements we're planning on putting in place in the next year are gonna make it, it I don't want to go so far as talking about revolution for our writers, but I, I think so. I think there, there's so much there that we're going to be able to show. And a lot of it was delayed because of COVID. But Carrie is working closely with the technology department to, to beta test it and get it out there. I just can't wait to see how this can improve our service. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely excited to see that, too, because uh, so many people rely on these bad boys these days, It you know, having accurate you know information Mm -hmm. a lot of people can't afford to miss that bus like they just can't these days I know you got a a ton to focus on obviously um probably in front of this but what kind of um 
green initiatives do you guys have in the works or or do you have they been put on the back burner um i know you know we have natural gas buses and stuff but you know there are new technologies out there for public transportation what are y'all looking into well there's a couple of different initiatives we're looking at i know that we've had a lot of people say well you should be going all electric and um and i would like to see uh some electric here but the, the honest truth is that the electric buses cost twice as much as the cngs and um, the CNGs are very efficient when it comes to some of the green emissions. When the technology for buses is better for the electric fleets, I want to start piloting them. I want to start bringing them here. But there's a lot of challenge. When we look at the hybrid technology in Nashville, that hybrid technology, it was very expensive. It broke down more and it needed midlife overhauls for the batteries, batteries degraded. They couldn't go as far you had to pay for the, the infrastructure to charge them. So there was a lot of challenges, the electric fleet. Now, it's getting better. Every year, it's getting better. And I'm thinking that uh, we're going to start looking towards doing a study for a 2050 plan about how we can start converting in the next couple of years as our CNG vehicles start to need to be replaced. Might that be the time that we start the conversion? Because our buses last 12 years, and we're about 90% through to uh, replacing all of our diesel at some point, we'll start looking at it. But it's not as easy as just saying, well, we're just going to have all electric vehicles. you got to plug them in. you got to charge them. And so that means our entire facility here has to be retrofitted to be able to plug in all these buses. And we're talking hundreds of buses and vans. But our maintenance folks are looking at maybe putting some solar power on, the, on top of our building to, to help reduce our energy costs and to power some of the, the building. Um, we're in a lead building now. Ten years ago when this building was built, it's a lead building. And so we have some initiatives we're looking at. I think that we're already, by our very nature of being transit, we're greener than a lot of other industries. Uh, Carrie, what am I missing? I know that there's so much that we have going on, um, but that's just some of the things I can think off the top of my head. Well, we'd already mentioned the new shelters that are being installed. The lighting is solar powered. So we're already trying to take advantage of the technology where it is already affordable within our budget and we can deploy it in a reasonable way. Uh, I'm a part of the RVA Green 2050 group, and that has just been so good to learn about how this is all connected and what a huge effort it's going to be, but possible with steps over time that are intentional. And one of the discussions that we had recently was about fleet conversion, not just for GRTC, but fleets for municipalities in general, mm -hmm. police fleets, truck, uh, you know, trash trucks, all the service equipment that, that's used by a locality to function in the community. And they shared similar questions and concerns. It's not just about switching over to what's powering the individual vehicle. It's all the physical infrastructure that you have to change at your facilities throughout the community to make sure that you aren't getting stranded in your trash truck in somebody's alley uh, because your battery died in your vehicle. Uh, so it, it's going to be, I think, a really great process as we go through the next uh, years working together and, and definitely as the technology gets better. I'll share a very brief story. GRTC did in the early 2000s try electric power, battery powered buses and we really struggled with the hills in Richmond as the vehicles, which are, our buses are big and they're heavy, they're much heavier than, you know, a Prius. And it's going to take a lot more power to move that weight, to move that. And the buses really struggled going up and down Broad Street um, from the bottom back up the hill and, and back and forth on Main as well. So I think that the good news is the battery technology has gotten much better, but the cost is still a real barrier when, when you're looking at a transit system that's only allocated X amount of dollars capital to invest in their fleet. Do they take that capital and invest in a bus that's twice as expensive or do they get two buses for the price of one? Uh, and, and that's a really difficult decision. And it's going, the answer is going to be different all across the country, depending on what that, what that, agency can can afford yeah i mean just to kind of give you an order of magnitude a 40-foot cng bus is about half a million dollars a 40-foot electric bus is a million yeah ouch <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, it when CNG is a, a, one of the other things that we're looking at, we're talking to the industry, maybe we don't convert to electric. Maybe the next conversion is to a biofuel or something that's more sustainable that has a smaller footprint. So we're going to look at a lot of different options uh, to see what works for us and what works here in RVA. And I'll just have one last power, you know, thing. Your electric vehicle is only as clean as the electricity powering it. If you are still getting electricity from coal and non-renewable sources, then your little Prius is not as green as you think it is. So this is a way bigger conversation with the, the power companies that are it is, providing the electricity. Don't be hating on my Prius. <laughs> I love my Prius. Do not hate on my Prius. <laughs> Julie does drive a Prius, P.S. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was my last little point I had to make about power and its oh sustainability. But it is true. Um, green is relative. Second Prius. <laughs> Just so you know, I'm a, I'm a converted Prius user. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, as we prepare to close out, one of the things that is always exciting about um, transit um, is that um, just like many other industries across the nation, transit, um, and there's a trash truck somewhere or a bus backing up. (laughs) Transit is always very trendy. And so as we look um, around the country, around the nation, um, of course, dollars and cents are always um, in hindrance. But if we had an abundance of funding, what are some of the trends that we haven't necessarily talked about or discussed already that if we had an abundance of coins, if it would work for Richmond um, or would be an, an, you know, a great asset to our transit yeah. system? Um, that you would like yeah. to see if we had the funds for it. There are two initiatives that I'm, I'm hoping that we can find the funds here for shortly. Uh, one is called Mobility as a Service uh, Mass. And that's where you have, it's not just the buses, but it really is looking at how do we interconnect all different modes. So if you have an app, um, you can put in, I'm here and I want to go there. Tell me the, all the different, how, tell me how to get there using any mode available using a bike share, a zip car, a car share, a van pool, a bus, um, walking, a trail. Uh, what's the cheapest way to get there? What's the fastest way to get there? What's the fewest seats? But one app, Mobility as a Service, lets you know how to do it. And then you can choose what's the best option for you based on your own criteria. I really would love to see us get to a Mobility as a Service here. I also want to see us uh, look at transit beyond just a bus. That transit is about mobility making those connections through microtransit, through the last mile, first mile, whether it's uh, an Uber on-demand lift kind of user thing where we can get people to and from end of lines, or if maybe it's areas that are further away from traditional bus where we can connect seniors to healthcare um, and have those. Those are popping up around the region, but how do we kind of make those more interconnected so that people can transfer? They're not stuck within a single region, but uh, like... um, a certain locality might only be available to have on-demand service inside that locality. How do they connect so they can get to the, the next jurisdiction over for fresh food or for fresh health care or just to go to the park? How do we make sure that people have uh, easy access to the James River? Um, so looking at some of the, the microtransit that goes beyond just operating a bus and how do we interconnect that throughout the entire region and, and connect that to a mobility as a service program so that people have multiple options for mobility, not just one. And I know you're seeing this pop up around the country. I think that autonomous vehicles might be part of that solution in some of those areas where it doesn't make sense to do transit bus. It might make sense to do an autonomous shuttle that connects them in. I think that's a great technology we should be looking at. Um, I love, I have a love-hate with uh, scooters. I think uh, scooters are awesome. People who use scooters, not so much. I've used it once. I was a danger to everyone around me. But they're a great first mile, last mile connection. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of different people technology out there. We just have to... 
I did too. I, trust me, it was terrifying for everyone around me. I loved it. I was, I was, I was, I had so much fun. But uh, I, I, I'm sure if anyone had a picture, it was horrifying to watch. <laughs> <laughs> so that's yeah, that's what I'm looking at. I don't know, Carrie, if you've seen other trends that we need to be looking at and focusing. But honestly, anything that's innovative, we need to be asking why. We need to be asking how. Uh, we need to be looking for opportunities and, and breaking down barriers. And that's what I think that our mission needs to be is how do we connect people? Because mobility isn't just about connecting people to places. It's also giving people that social and economic mobility. And that's, that's what I really want to be able to focus on is making sure that we're giving people opportunities for social and economic mobility by breaking down the barriers of transportation mobility. Kara, do you want to add anything before we close? I think the, the, really the last thing, because it is already happening, is that we are placing dollars in improvements directly to customers with the benches, the shelters, new, uh, they're called landing pads. I know it sounds kind of spacey, but it's literally just the concrete flat uh, surface that we have to construct at a bus stop so that when the bus stops and kneels and deploys a ramp, somebody can easily roll on or walk on and off the bus to a level surface, unlike Walter's experience down on Southside. So I, I feel like that is really important and it's worth celebrating that we are investing right now tangibly with really important amenity improvements. And we're working with the localities too to see what we can do beyond just the bus stop space. And, and I think a good example is on Nine Mile in the east end of the city of Richmond. There's a big pedestrian improvement project that's going to be happening there this year. And we're marrying our schedule for improving our bus stops in that same corridor with their projects so that in one fell swoop, there'll be new pedestrian improvements on Nine Mile in the city's east end, plus new bus stop shelters and amenities. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Richmond, that gives us something to look forward to. And that gives us something to look into as well. So we have something to further advocate for when we're looking for future pilots to look into. So ladies, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate always your hard work, your wealth of knowledge, and you keep us moving. And that's important. Thank, Thank you, you for, for having us. us back. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome back anytime. Just holler. Thank you. Yes. I'll yes, stay yes. well, stay safe. We yep, appreciate you. Do the it. same. Thank you. So, you know what time it is? Richmond, Flint still has dirty water, and now so does New Jersey, and Petersburg does too. So, we might need to work on that because that's across the way from us. RPS is fully funded last year and it's budget season. So hopefully council will work that out and we'll have RPS fully funded this year and the year after that and the year after that to infinity and beyond so that our kids can go back to school or whatever it is that they need to do so that we don't have a gap year and they're okay. All right. And I know it, you know it, we all know it together. Richmond is most certainly still racist, but one day at a time, we shall overcome. Talk to you next week. Busty, 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 busty,